Welcome to the archives of Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. In England in the 1830s, at the time of a major cholera epidemic, a young girl, the orphan daughter of a prostitute, finds that working in a pottery factory does not earn her enough money for herself and her child. She finds that she must also work at night as a prostitute. Having virtually no money, she rents her dress and is followed while she walks the streets so that she will not run off with the garment. She's called a dress lodger. Sherry Holman, a native of rural Virginia and later a resident of Brooklyn, New York, has researched the lives of girls who were dress lodgers at that time and has written a book of historical fiction about Gustine, a 15-year-old dress lodger who lived and worked in Sunderland, England in 1831. Her book is entitled The Dress Lodger. I spoke with Sherry Holman by phone from her home in New York in early 2001 and asked her to begin by telling us about Gustine. Well, Gustine is the dress lodger of the title, and she is a 15-year-old prostitute who by day works as a potter's assistant at a pottery factory um, carrying heavy lumps of clay. And at night, she comes home and dons a beautiful, expensive blue dress that she rents from her pimp or landlord, um, who's named Wilkie. And she goes out onto the streets and plies her trade as a prostitute. And um, a dress lodger is, is a very specific kind of prostitute. She She's this woman who rents a dress, so she doesn't own it. She's completely beholden to her pimp, but her pimp would never trust her not to steal the dress and pawn it. So he would hire an old woman to follow her through the streets to make make sure she didn't make off with his dress. And the old woman who follows Gustine is an old woman who um, has lost one of her eyes in an accident and is known only as the Eye. And her entire mission in life is to follow Gustine's dress. When you say home, she lives in a house of prostitution? She lives in a low lodging house. The address is 9 Mill Street. And um, this was actually a real lodging house in Sunderland of the period where um, the cholera kind of, it was sort of the epicenter of cholera in Sunderland. And um, these low lodging houses were absolutely horrible. They, um, there were 30 or 40 lodgers who lived, you know, head to foot on dirty straw upstairs. Um, you know, they were, they paid sort of an exorbitant rent just to be able to live there. They were sometimes given coffee and a meal if they were lucky. And um, Gustine lives there with her baby, which is the reason that she works two jobs. Um, her child was born with sort of a remarkable anatomical defect, wherein his heart beats on the outside of his chest cavity. He has a condition called ectopia cordis. And Gustine is absolutely determined that this child will not die, even though everyone tells her, you know, he's never going to make it. And, um, and that's why she not only works in the pottery factory, but she's willing to prostitute herself. What was her home life like uh, with her parents that caused her to leave at such a young age? Well, I don't go into it too terribly much. Her um, her father's um, 
no one really knew who her father was. Her mother was also a prostitute and a drunk, and she died in this lodging house when Gustine was nine, and Gustine has lived there ever since. The same lodging house. Exactly. What motivated you to write a story about a 15-year-old prostitute who lived <laughs> well, my 100— My mom and... wants to know. She's like, yeah. what did I do to you? Right. <laughs> um, who lived 170 years ago. I know. Well, you know, when I was maybe 22 or 23 years old, I was working um, as a temporary you know, worker at Penguin Publishers. And one of the few perks about working in publishing is that you actually get free books. And I was reading um, a social study of the of the period of the 1840s and 50s called London Labor and the London Poor. And it was written by a man named Henry Mayhew, who was a good friend of Charles Dickens. And he had an entire, a really long section on the different types of prostitutes of London. And as I was reading this, when I should have been doing my work, I came across this little tiny paragraph about a dress lodger. And that image of this young, gaudily dressed girl being followed by this old woman, you know, sort of like having your own mortality trail you through the streets, um, was just such a vivid image. I wrote it down in my notebook and um, and then probably forgot about it for eight years while I went on, you know, to, to write my first novel, A Stolen Tongue. And then when I was trying to decide what I wanted to write, you know, for my second book, that image came back to me. And I'm like, well, if I could remember this for eight years, this is something to pay attention to. And, um, you know, I also said it during the cholera epidemics. Um, Sunderland was the first place in Great Britain where cholera came in. And um, that image of, of sort of, well, the way that cholera kills you is it takes all the fluids out of your body, so you become wrinkled and hunched over, and it's as though you age 40 years in a matter of hours. And so that, that image of this young girl being followed by this old woman, you know, sort of like being trailed by your own cholera death, seemed to, um, it seemed to be very evocative to me. And so I guess that's what, why I decided to do it. Well, we know now that uh, cholera is transmitted through water and through unsafe uh, or unseparated sanitation systems. Did they know that then? No, they had no idea how cholera spread. It, um, it first sort of reared its head in India centuries and centuries ago, and it used to be carried along the pilgrimage routes to the Ganges, but it had never left India. And then when the British Army was marching across India in 1815, they intersected with the pilgrimage routes and began to spread the disease, you know, outside of its natural habitat. And this is right when steamships were being introduced, so transportation was much swifter, and the disease started going from port town to port town. And so the people in Great Britain were sitting there, you know, reading the newspaper, watching this horrifying disease come relentlessly westward, but they had no idea how it spread. They didn't know if it was contagious from person to person. Um, it seemed to affect primarily the poor, who, as we now know, were living in such unsanitary conditions. Um, so a lot of people thought it was just something innately evil in the poor, um, because they also thought that people were responsible for their own poverty. Some people thought that lightning caused cholera. Some people thought it was too much carbon in the bloodstream. They had, they had no idea how this disease was spread. They just knew it killed you very violently. How did uh, Gustine and her baby escape the, uh, the plague and the epidemics? 
Um, well, they, they didn't. Um, I don't want to give too much of it away, but the cholera definitely comes for someone close to Gustine's heart. And um, Gustine also falls ill with it by the end of the book and, um, and only just barely survives. I, I wanted to have her um, have a little bit of hope at the end of this very grim story. Well, for a person uh, like yourself who grew up in rural Virginia, how do you get the empirical evidence and the factual background to lay out this story? Well, I did a tremendous amount of research, and I just, I really love doing research. its I almost feel like I'm cheating because I sometimes enjoy the research more than I enjoy the writing. You know, when you're researching, everything seems possible, and when you sit down at your computer, you're suddenly faced with your limitations as a writer. But um, I first went to Sunderland, where I... Um, I walked the streets that Gustine walked. I spent a lot of time in the local history library. Um, I poured through census reports, um, through old maps. I, I knew I wanted um, this dress lodger, and I knew I wanted the anatomy teacher, Henry Cheever, but I didn't really know where I wanted the story to go. So I sort of let my research suggest the plot. And... Um, you know, I, I not only had to do a lot of research into cholera, I have this character that's an anatomy teacher, so I read lots of anatomy text of the period, um, all sorts of obscure um, books on porcelain manufacturing to get Gustine's Pottery Factory correct. I, um, I had to read books and books and books for the six-page scene um, at the theater because I, I didn't know that much about pre-Victorian melodrama, but I wanted to include this play in there. So I went and did a bunch of research on that. And, um, you know, and every time I thought it was done, I would come to some new point and realize, well, I don't really know this well, so I better read another book on that. And I, I feel like the more you know about your period, the more you can allow yourself to forget. It's as though you become a citizen of that of the country, the period, the time that you're writing, so um, I'm a I'm a big advocate of research. It's kind of like the definition of education being everything that we remember after we've forgotten everything we learned. <laughs> that that's a really great analogy. I, I completely agree. I'd like to take a moment and uh, tell our listeners that this week we're talking with Sherry Holman, the author of a recent book called The Dress Lodger, a story about a 15-year-old girl who lived in Sunderland, England, during a uh, cholera epidemic of 1831. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Sherry, um, Gustine becomes friends with uh, the anatomy teacher, Dr. Henry Cheever, but it's more than a friendship. Can you tell us about him? Sure. Well, um, up until 1832, it was illegal for doctors to perform anatomy studies on anyone who was not a convicted felon and executed by the state. So if you were executed as an extra punishment, they would throw your body to medical students to perform their dissections. And this is the only way doctors could legally get bodies to study in order for medicine to advance. They were realizing that anatomy was a very important component of medicine back then. And so I have this character, Henry Cheever, as um, a young kind of idealistic anatomy teacher who was living in Edinburgh and got mixed up in a real historical scandal that took place there in um, 1828, where two men named Burke and Hare um, decided that they um, 
Well, I should I should stop for a minute and tell you that um, because there were not enough bodies to go around from convicted murderers, um, men became what were known as resurrectionists. And what they would do is they would be these sort of lower-class men who would dig up bodies that had been buried and sell them to anatomy schools. And these two men, Burke and Hare, um, were a little too lazy to dig up the bodies, and so what they did is they murdered 16 beggars in Edinburgh. And I have my fictional doctor, Henry Cheever, be mixed up in this historical scandal. And he's since fled Edinburgh. He's come to Sunderland to start a new anatomy school to try to escape the stigma of being involved with these murderers. But when he arrives in Sunderland, he realizes there are not enough bodies here either. And how is he going to come by them without having to dig them up himself? So what he does is, in the course of his nightly wanderings, he um, comes in contact with Gustine, our dress lodger, and they form a pact. She will try to find dead bodies for him, and in return, he will try to save the life of her child. And um, what happens over the course of the book is he becomes um, more and more obsessed with with Gustine's baby to the point that he tries to, to take the baby from her and um, is punished consequently. What does he want to do with the baby? Find out what its anatomical defect exactly. comes, well, comes the, from? The thing is, he, um, as I've set it up, he's very interested in the workings of the human heart. And here is a child whose heart is actually beating on the outside of its chest cavity so that he can study it, he can make... Um, he can start to understand the workings of the heart on a living creature rather than having only to work with the dead. And he thinks it's going to make his medical career. He becomes completely obsessed with having this child. And, of course, Gustine doesn't want to give him up. Um, and it leads to one of the crises in the book. Well, Sherry, I'd like to ask you to uh, read us a section of your book for our listeners. Sure. Well, I... Um, I'll start in the beginning and just read um, maybe the first page and a half. Um, this is from the first section of the book called Work, and um, it's just sort of a description of Sunderland. A girl and her shadow. The boys down on the low key know a hundred ways to sell bad fish. They'll mingle four dead eels with everyone alive, knowing full well the average man can't tell which is which, tangled inside a cloudy tub. They'll polish up a stinking mackerel with a bit of turpentine and buff it with their shirt tails until it gleams. Beneath the wharves late in the day, you can catch them blowing air into the bellies of cod to make their underweight catch look fat and succulent. Poor hungry family to puncture those flatulent fish and find them more air than meat. But a boy's got to make a living. And when he's forced to feel around in the mud at low tide, scrambling after the sprats dropped overboard from a trawler, he may have to take a little advantage to earn his daily wage. You notice it most on Saturday nights, when the markets are set up along Low Street. The orange sellers have secretly boiled their fruit to plump it up, though the practice causes it to turn black within a day. The cherry vendors have weighted their pre-packed boxes of cabbage leaves to tip the scales. Not everyone is dishonest, but nearly every merchant prefers to sell his wares after dark when their imperfections are softened by candlelight and men's eyes are decidedly less discerning after a full day's work. 
most workers are paid on Saturday night here in Sunderland. So they have money in their pockets for meat pies and jacket potatoes kept warm in barrel ovens. They buy two pennies worth of greasy herring and a roll to go with it. The young sons of public house owners crisscross the market delivering trays of ale to wives who have ordered it for their family dinners and are stopped along the way by so many thirsty men they have to run back for more. On Saturday night, when the streets are extravagant with stacked purple cabbages, ruby apples, bright green leeks, fringing stalls, iridescent with oyster shells, everyone feels rich. There will be meat on Sunday, and when a favorite customer comes to buy his chops, the expansive butcher holds out a newly slaughtered pig's heart like a present. It is Saturday night. Work is another two days away. Sunday you may play cards or walk out on the town moor, or if you're feeling guilty about something, wash your face and go to church. Perhaps you'll just want to sleep, which is what happens most Sundays, when you take your tea on the stool by the fire and realize how good it feels just to sit and stare until your head drops down upon your chest and your cup slips from your fingers. But Saturday night you are alive and you want some entertainment. Two new shows have come to town. One is about that disease everyone keeps talking about, the cholera morbus. But the second one sounds far more promising. The spectacle unique Les Chats Savant, Signor Capelli's celebrated menagerie of sagacious cats, well known in the principal cities of Europe, whose docility and intelligence never fail to astonish. You could certainly stand to be delightfully astonished, since the astonishment you'll receive tomorrow when you learn half the plums you bought tonight are rotted through will be decidedly less pleasant. You push your way between the stalls along Low Street, headed towards the theater on Sands. On your right, the River Ware makes a snaking black ribbon between Sunderland proper and well-lit Monk Wearmouth on the opposite shore. There are fewer ships on the river because of the quarantine, you think, and it is killing everyone, from the keelmen who load Newcastle coal to the potteries that need imported Dorset clay. Your backroom matchstick factory is safe, at least, no matter what happens. For ten years, you've painted phosphorus tips on little wooden splinters, and you've never for a day done without supplies. The phosphorus is slowly rotting your jawbone and turning you into a freakish mess. You can't bear to look in the glass. But tonight, Saturday night, you want only to see some sagacious cats and not think about how your hands and face glow in the dark. This week on Radio Curious, we're talking with Sherry Holman, author of The Dress Lodger. I'm Barry Vogel. Sherry, living in uh, Brooklyn, part of one of the largest, most complex cities in the world, and having studied another large, complex city in the world uh, that existed 170 years earlier, how would you compare the two? I realized, you know, when I was writing, is sort of, you know, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Um, I, I try to pick themes in history that still resonate today. And one of the things that struck me so powerfully is that back then, 
um, the poor thought that cholera was a conspiracy by the government to wipe them out. They didn't believe cholera really existed because it, it tended not to target the wealthy. It was really only the poor who died from it. And, um, and so what they thought is the government was trying to wipe them out, and they were using doctors as government agents to come into poor people's homes. They thought the census was a big plot to let the government into a person's home, to plant the seeds of cholera, to then kill off the poor, and then the doctors would have them for their anatomy studies. And in Brooklyn, and I'm sure it was this way in many cities around America, um, a lot of people thought that the AIDS epidemic was trumped up by the government, that it was a government conspiracy to wipe out um, those who were suffering from AIDS, from um, African-American populations, from intravenous drug users. And, and even if they didn't believe that the government purposefully planted AIDS, they thought that they weren't doing everything in their power to eradicate it. Um, so... I felt very powerfully that that was sort of, you know, the same thing as back then. And then another thing that struck me is um, we still have a chronic shortage of bodies for donation. Um, here we live in this rational age where we believe that, uh, you know, our spirit is in a better place, so the flesh is just the flesh. But so many people refuse to will their bodies to science after they die. Um, so many people refuse to check off that little box on their driver's license. My mother called me the other day and said that um, there's just been a big scandal in Liverpool, England, because um, they just found a, bo uh, a hospital that was hoarding the bodies of children down in the basement. And, um, you know, children who had died. And when the parents found out, you know, they were absolutely horrified. So this stuff is still going on. And... Um, you know, that's what I think makes a good historical novel, is if you can find those echoes, if you can find the things that still resonate. When we started talking earlier, and I asked you uh, what drew you to write this book, you said your mother asked the same question. Why would you write a book about a 15-year-old prostitute? What did you tell her? You know, I, I think that I was really trying to explore vulnerability. And... Um, you know, this, one of the things that I think is, you know, important about Christine is that she is so young. And what we forget is um, how children were put to work back then. It's, um, you know, it was not unusual to be working at seven, eight, nine years of age. Um, and there's something about the way that adolescence is privileged in our society now that, um, you know, is so utterly different. And yet, people still prey on teenagers as they did back then. So I, you know, I think I was, I was really trying to explore that. And, um, you know, I don't really know. It's like you never know why you picked the subject that you did. It obviously spoke to me on some deeper level. It touched some vulnerability in me. And, um, you know, my, my poor mom has to deal with it. <laughs> did she accept the answer that you gave her? I think so. I think so. I mean, she was, um, there were parts of this book that I think were really hard for her to read. And, um, and then at the same time, I think she was incredibly proud of me for having written it. So I think she's come to expect this sort of thing from me by now. From the portion of the book that you read and uh, from other parts throughout the book, you describe what is really a very difficult, uneasy life compared to what uh, most people in North America uh, have now. Um, what's your feeling, what's your reaction about the day-to-day -day life of the people in that time? 
have amazed anybody made it alive into the 20th century. I mean, the conditions under which these people lived were just incredible. I mean, not only were you sleeping 40 people in a room, you know, not only did people keep crocks of urine in their kitchen to wash their clothes with, there was no sanitation, there was no sewer system at that point. People dumped their waste out of the window like they did in the Middle Ages. Um, There were all sorts of occupational hazards. The women that Gustine worked in the pottery factory with, the paintresses um, used lead glaze to coat the pot, so they would be dunking their arms into lead glaze day after day, and they would die of lead poisoning. The character Foss, um, from the section that I read in the beginning, um, though she dies of cholera in the book, is suffering from phosphorus poisoning, from painting phosphorus on matchsticks. And it's just remarkable to me how these people ever survived. And the the thing is, there was this huge reformation in the 1840s, you know, about 10 years after this book takes place, that was spurred on by cholera. There were these sanitation reforms that were enacted, where these middle-class men marched into the slums and decided they were going to clean this place up, and they were going to make people, you know, wash things, and they were going to put in a sewer system. But what you realize is that it was not really out of compunction um, or any sort of compassion for the poor. It was um, that they were afraid that the poor were going to infect them. They knew that their middle-class households were in danger when their maids went out into the into the shops and intermingled with these filthy poor and brought disease back into wealthier households. So they did decide to go in and clean up the slums, but only sort of to save themselves. Well, Sherry Holman, I want to thank you for joining us on Radio Curious. And before we close, I'd like to ask you to tell us about an interesting book that you've read lately. I am reading something that does not relate at all to um, either the book I just wrote or the book I'm working on. It's a wonderful work of nonfiction that just won the National Book Critics Circle Award, maybe last year I think it did, called The Spirit Catches You and You Fall Down. And it's an incredibly moving story about a Hmong family from Laos who's come to America Um, whose daughter falls ill of epilepsy, and they're butting heads with the American Medical Institution. So it's it's all about cross-cultural misunderstandings and um, and this very tragic story of this poor girl with epilepsy who's caught in the middle. And it's it's one of the most moving books I've read in a very long time. I, I highly recommend it. Well, Sherry Holman, thank you very much for joining us on Radio Curious. Thank you. Sherry Holman is the author of The Dress Lodger. The book that she recommends is The Spirit Catches You and You Fall Down by Anne Fademan. Copies of this and other editions of Radio Curious can be found on our website, www.radiocurious.org. I'm honored to tell you that Radio Curious is now part of the collection at the Library of Congress. We appreciate your cards, ideas, and letters, and do enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The postal address is 700 West Smith Street, Ukiah, California, 95482. 
The phone is 707-621-5075. Ignacio Ayala is the assistant producer. I'm host and producer, Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.